Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Like, because we're moving and, you know, bought a house and all that, I was, like, scared to look at the credit card balance. I don't know if you've ever had that, where you're like, I don't know. I can... <laughs> wait, wait. Have I ever? <laughs> I, I think I've had that every single day of my I have had that every single day of my life since I worked at Express and told myself I deserved an Express credit card, baby. I was getting 40% off thinking to myself like, man, this is basically like getting stuff for free. And not only did I max out that card, I basically had to use my entire paycheck every time to to pay off. my. I feel I'm talking to a a comrade here. Um, And I, I just was like, I've been using this card a lot. And so I looked and it wasn't as, it wasn't as bad as I thought, but it was, um, it was bad. Don't get me wrong. But it's also like, again, if I'm going to practice what I preach, which is like, get the data, you sort of have to just face and like face the fear. And I was talking to myself the whole time the page is loading. I'm like, it's better to know than to not know you can do this. So like reparenting myself or just parenting myself. And it was, it was not outrageous, but I was like, okay, that's going to, it's going to put a kibosh on uh, going to Costco as much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, getting, uh, buying a house and getting married are two times in life where you're like, uh, uh, suddenly it's not only the money that you have to spend on that thing. It's the money that you have to spend around the whole thing. Like whether it's, I have to take a cab to sign the closing papers or I have to buy all new kitchen utensils, you know, that kind of shit. It's sort of like, um, yeah, the tentacles of this purchase. Uh, I would say 10 out of 10 better than getting married. (laughs) But um, (laughs) that was a nightmare. And like that, my mom was sick and like, it was just awful. Like my wedding was not a good memory, like not a good memory. Like I don't like looking at my wedding pictures. We knew my mom was going to die. We found out the day after my wedding shower that she had terminal cancer basically. And I wanted to cancel the wedding. And she was like, F you, you're not, if you want to pay me back $50,000, which at the time I thought was so much. And it is a lot, but people spend way more. But anyway, for me, it was a lot. And I was like, I'm not paying her ass back 50,000. So we had the wedding. So all this to say the house has actually been a much more enjoyable experience. However, the funds, it, it, it just goes. I mean, I totally understand how people, you know, um, my banker was saying that most like the average American and by average American, who knows what the fuck they use as markers, but I don't know, is in, I, I shit you not, has a debt balance of anywhere from 75,000 to 200,000. This does, this does not phase me whatsoever. This, yeah, I, I have no trouble believing that. I was going to say, well, congratulations to you and Miles on going from being debt-free to a debt that you won't be able to pay off for at least 30 years. But listen, it's not a bad debt to have. It's usually like a pretty decent no, interest and- rate and it's an investment. Yeah. And we literally found out that yeah, there was an article published in the New York Times that was like Ventura, the last affordable California beach town. 
Wow, getting so, in clutch. Probably in 20 years, you're going to be able to sell it for like five bajillion dollars. Like I'll be Jeff um, Bezos walking around with my small dick and my cowboy hat on or whatever the fuck. <laughs> to answer your question or maybe to make you feel better about the debt thing, like I have a note on my phone that just lists, you know, where we are and I update it basically like every Ooh. month. And I was so happy when I started doing this and I was getting things, you know, like some credit cards, for example, I had a credit card from a furniture store that had a 27% interest rate. Like, why on earth was I? Yeah, seriously. I'm sure that's what the express one was too. Any, any kind of like store charge is just, you'll, you'll pay $10,000 for your whatever, $2,000. Oh my God. Um, But I still, we still owe for for med school yes yeah yeah ninety thousand dollars yeah you know and it caught it cost like four hundred thousand or five hundred thousand dollars and it's the the year he graduated was the year before they capped medical student debt the year before uh and and in fact my social work degree i'm still paying i still owe nine thousand dollars that's better than anything else that's ever listen, been that's a, this is the end of my student loan yeah debt, hopefully. listen i the smartest thing i ever did this and we've had we had a whole episode on debt on on our podcast but the smartest thing i ever did was when the the day we sold my mother's house i literally took the check from the house sale they wired it into my bank account I went to my bank and did before it touched anything. I said, take 50,000 of that and please pay these people, these asshole private lenders today. And they did. And I was, and I literally wrote a note to them saying, go fuck yourselves. Here's your money. And my banker was like, are you sure you want to put that in the memo? I'm like, put it in the memo. I think I didn't say fuck. I said F you. I said F you because I was scared to get sued. So if I'm honest, it was like Well, that it's such a good feeling to pay off a debt like that. Like I I I I salivate for the day. I can we can pay off all these student loan, you know. It's a it's a slog. It's just a real slog. And you know, my dad was really in some ways he was good with money. He was the first person to tell me, oh, never never I, I wanted to take him out to lunch and I had to pay for it on my credit card. He's, he's like, no, if you cannot afford to go out to lunch, don't go out to lunch. Don't put lunch on your credit card in some way. So in that way he was good, but then he died penniless because he invested all of his money in, <laughs> in one well, thing. So there's that. This is a really good thing just to, to point out that people I'm noticing people are really good at some things in the same genre parts of something in the same genre and terrible at other parts in the same thing. I guess the point is like, it's really hard to talk about money. It's really hard to teach your kids about money. It's really hard to practice what you preach about money. Like it's all just really hard because when we feel, you know, my thing that I get into is like, Oh, but I deserve this because I've whatever I've worked hard or I've gone, you know, I, I really get into this like, justification stuff with money and I'm better about it now than I ever have been but it's a battle yeah it's a battle and and what I was going to ask was like in terms of like do you do this okay so I find this really weird I know people because the the lotto powerball right was that was at um two 1.2 
billion dollars. I don't know if you knew that. So after taxes and shit, you walk away with 600 million or something. I don't know. But okay. So I bought tickets. I like never buy lotto tickets, but I did. And of course we won $5 and Doris ate the fucking ticket. That motherfucker. So I couldn't even get the $5. So that's like God's way of saying like, listen, bitch, just stop all this. Um, uh, so, so fine. But I know people, Gina, who planned out what they would do with the money as a couple. Mm -hmm. Like they had lists of people. They had lists of like where would the money would go and what it would do. Gina, do you, Mm -hmm. would you do this? This seems, I just, I never get into it. Like I'm never so hopeful or presumptuous that I'm going to win. Anyway, they had like things they were going to do with this money that they hadn't won. I'm like, I think it's kind of like when you played mash, when you were on the bus going to a field trip, you're just like, I'm going to live in a mansion. I'm going to have 36 kids. Like it's kind of that. It's that it's like a self-soothing thing of like, wouldn't it be my kids are constantly saying, you know, if somebody gave you one, their thing is usually like, how much would you have to be paid to do this disgusting oh, right, thing? Right, that's like, and my husband, yeah. and they, my whole family loves these hypotheticals. I can't stand them, but they're always asking me these hypotheticals. And my husband's thing is always like, you have to spend $5 million today. And it, and he has all these rules about it. Like, and it can't be to pay off your debt or, you know, it's just gotta be, you know, <laughs> they invest so much. Right. It must really be soothing to them because the way they pressure me about yeah. what my answers are yeah. is like, this is not a real thing. Well, that's, anyway. yeah. I was like, wait, you're doing what? They're like, yeah, like we wouldn't give this person, we would do this. And I'm like, you fools. We're, none of us are winning anything. This is a racket. What You're actually spending more than three minutes. Well, here I am talking about it, but they like got paper and pen out and like did. A, and I was like, I would much rather spend that time like looking at, I don't know, discount pet probiotic treats online. I mean, I just don't, it's not, it's not soothing to me. I guess you're right. You said it. Everyone has different self-soothing um, mechanisms and mine is not to plan out what my Six, my lotto. Where you have the better chances, right? They say of being struck by lightning twice than winning the lotto. Yeah, my version of that was more like when I was dating my gay boyfriend in high school, being like, "This is what our wedding is going to look like," and his mom's a really great Italian cook. So we're. Oh, wait, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, like wait! More... What about the Italian cooks? Well, his mom uh, was is a was a great Italian cook. So I wasn't like, she's going to cater it. And this is what I'm looking at wedding mag. I was 16 years old dating this boy. So obviously gay, everybody but me knew he was gay. Well, actually everybody but me and him, it took him a while to right. figure it out um, too. Yeah. Well, at least um, he that's what I was always was doing. I was you. always like investing in, yeah, I was always investing in fantasy relationships. That was my, I think that was my thing of, too. you know, what's my lot of money. I, yeah, I mean, I yeah. literally, I literally was thinking about like what just now when you were talking, like, what's my version of that? I, this is so sad. This is so sad. It's going to be so telling. And if like the, the people that listen to this podcast are going to be like, oh, Boz. Um, I would fantasize about if I just, oh, this is breaking my own heart. If I just hadn't eaten this, how much, how much skinnier I would have been. Like if I took away all the, this is so crazy. I can't believe I'm admitting this, but like as a teenager, I'd be like, if I just took away all the M&Ms I've ever eaten, I wonder how much thinner I, I mean, like that's how I invested my brain power. 
that is not, it's so sad. It's also, it's just so sad. It's so sad. So anyway, that was my version. Yeah, we all wasted so much time on that. Like, and can I regret every second I spent writing down what I ate or writing, keeping, I one time used to keep like a journal that I would take to the gym and I would write right. down like how long I ran and how many right. reps I did. It's just so sad, right? Like, yeah, this is kind of what people, I mean, and I'll say like, no surprise to anybody, but I'll say, I feel like this is what women get reduced to a lot. Just right. like counting your ins and your outs. And I'm on season two of The Vow, the Nexium documentary. Oh, yeah, I haven't started season even two. Better. Yeah, it's better than season one because it's all about the Nancy Salzman factor. Because the whole time I was going like, well, where is Nancy Salzman right. on this? And are they together? And and he did her as dirty. Well, he did her the dirtiest in a way because he he's really a parasite. Mm-hmm. And he took her smarts and her professional training and her great ideas and took took them over. Now, you could argue that maybe she couldn't have gotten anywhere without his charisma. So there's, there's that, but he took all of her stuff and turned it into a sex cult so that now she's wearing an ankle bracelet. I mean, he's in prison granted, but she's wearing an ankle bracelet and has lost her relationship with one of her daughters. You know, he's, he just completely destroyed everything. And and I, and I just thought when I was watching it, like, yeah, this is the position that so many women and maybe men too, but so many women find themselves in of like, you know, I can have the greatest idea in the world and I can be so full of like power and talent and knowledge. But if I meet the right person who meets my coding for like, I want to, I want you to approve of me. All of my senses go out the window and my only focus is like making you happy. And then look at it. I mean, it's totally. And, and you, we see that I was just like relating it back to like our theater school experience. It's the same thing. It's like, if I just do this, then I'm discovered. It's the same thing. Like I am just this undiscovered blob. I know how great I am, but um, nobody else does. And I'm just waiting or really it's like, I know how shitty I am, but like there's, I'm like this, I just am waiting for the right manager, the right agent, the right man, the right teacher to see me, to see that raw talent and that good idea and do something with it. God damn it. It's just listen, swoop more, down and pick me up get, and carry yeah. me in their talents. Yeah. And the older, I, and then kill me right on the way back to the nest. Exactly, all yeah. my ideas kill me. Hey, let me run this by you. Here's the thing I wanted to run by you. I am I am flirting Ooh. with a a notion of starting in another very small scale, like a ten or fifteen minute long podcast oh. that I would call something like Twelve Weird Questions. Ooh. And basically, it would just be having people on. I can't decide if it would be I would pick one theme and ask a bunch of questions related to that theme, or it would, they would just be random questions. But I'm going to do it first with you okay. because um, I, found, I, I thought of a bunch of questions that related to parenting. Now, I am not going to let on. I'm not going to pipe in. I'm just going to have you answer oh my God. these questions. Brilliant. Okay. Are we going to do it right now? We're going to do it right now. When you were a kid, did your, and you were, had clubs or extracurriculars or whatever, did your parents let you quit things if you wanted to? 
Yes, with massive amounts of guilt and shame. You meaning like they'd say, oh, if that's what you want to do, I oh, guess you're going to ruin your life. Yeah, kind of awful. I paid this good money. You're, I didn't raise a quitter, but I guess if you, oh God. So yes and no, right? Like they want it. Yeah, it was awful. So it was like very confusing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, how much uh, chores did you have to do as a kid? Um, I would say minimal, but the chores we did do were like the dumbest things. Like my mom was just so pissed. We weren't doing anything that she would make us do stupid ass shit. Like make sure the ice cube trays were filled in this freezer. And if they weren't, we had to, I believe, dump out half the ice and refill it. It was stupid shit, but yeah, minimal. I would say minimal. And I complained about everyone. And some of them were weird. Was it daily? Weekly. weekly? Did you have to clean like, your yeah, room? But then, yeah. Yeah. Weekly. It was supposed to teenage years. I refused. My sister and I ganged up on my mom and we're literally like, fuck you. We're not doing it. We were awful. Yeah. So we, she tried, but my dad did nothing. So yeah. Okay. So she was doing correct. it on her own. Uh, when did you start doing your own laundry? Oh, shit. That's a great question. I think I was probably in sixth, like middle school, sixth grade. Okay. Oh, that's, yeah. Okay. That's impressive. Did your parents provide you with every meal of the day and up to what age? Oh, no. I mean, my meaning mom- like, you know, give you breakfast and like send you to school with lunch or buy it and then make you dinner at night. Until Yes. Until high school. So high school started and uh, literally we've talked on the podcast about how like I ate beef bags and Doritos. However, it was provided. You know what I mean? Like she bought the shit and then we threw it into a bag. But I think high school, we were really on our own. Uh, What kind of consequences did you get when you broke a rule? I feel like it's so funny having an older sister. Okay, so... I'm just trying to like focus on myself because I feel like my sister didn't, she broke every rule and there were no consequences, but I'm also know that I'm making part of that up. Do you know what I mean? So, okay. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, I'm going to talk about myself specifically. I think it was yelling. There was a lot of yelling, screaming were the consequences. My mom would hit us when she couldn't use words anymore. And, and frankly, I don't blame her actually. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's right, but I, I, we were terrible. Uh, so yelling, screaming, hitting, and I believe there was probably like threats of things taken away. I don't know that they ever were like, um, like you can't use my car. You know, you're not going to be able to use the car if you don't, if you, because you were like awful. And then it, but I think it was mostly yelling and screaming, Gina, mostly. So it's unreliable, unpredictable, inconsistent, and emotional. That's it. There was no, yep, it was no, there was no logic or reasoning at all in my parents' parenting style of consequences and that, oh, it was the worst. Screaming, a lot of screaming. Okay. Okay. Again, was that only your mom or did your dad get in on the consequences Well, my dad, my favorite consequence story was me at 16 Um, and my sister had a boy over, this was so crazy. The only time I've heard my dad go crazy. Okay. I was upstairs and I heard a commotion. It was like seven in the morning. Apparently my sister like dated like older guys in bands, right? Whatever. She was in high school. So she was a senior. I was a junior. She had some guy come over and spend the night. He was supposed to be spending the night downstairs. Right. 
like he's visit. I don't know why my parents let that happen. But anyway, apparently in the middle of the night, my sister went fucking downstairs and slept with him. I don't know what they did, but they were in the same bed when my fucking six foot nine father came downstairs in the morning. What the fuck? Why don't you sneak back the fuck up, you dummies? Unless you want to get caught, right? And I hear this screaming from my father who never screamed. My dad, I've only heard him. That was the only time. And he was said, if you want to fuck my daughter, it's not going to be in my own house. It was a whole thing. I literally got my shit and like ran to school. And I never ran to school. I like got out of the house. So that was the only time I've ever heard my father yell. Say, go Chuck. I mean, it sounds like it was traumatizing. But at the same time, I would have probably had the same response. What things were considered your rights versus your privileges? Like what, what was, I mean, maybe your parents didn't use the language of like, this is a privilege, not a right. But looking back, can you identify things that, yes, you were always going to get versus they were a privilege? We were always going to get food, (laughs) clothing, a place to live. Although sometimes I was like, they're going to kick my sister. We're going to get kicked out. But no, but food, all food, clothing, shelter, those things. And then literally it was made to seem like everything else was a huge privilege. Okay. But it doesn't sound like those things were necessarily like part of the consequences, given that your consequences were always emotional and not really. Okay. What was your curfew and were there any limits on what you could do while you were out of the house? No. So, so we are, I I think my curfew was 11 when I was in high school and then, but they didn't, let me tell you something. My parents didn't fucking know what the fuck was going on when I left that house. So they, I don't know where they were, but they didn't, there was no cell phones. I literally ran the streets of mean Evanston from anytime after school on the, I think on like weeknights were different, right? Like weeknights, most stuff, we couldn't be out past like nine or 10, right? Like in terms of, and it had to be like school related, like homework and shit like that. On the weekends, it was like. I mean, I was drinking alcohol in eighth grade on the weekends. My friend had a wine cellar and we would steal wine. I mean, it was crazy with my friends. We were nuts. Like I'm still friends, like best, you know, like my best friend from that time was Amber and I'm still friends with her. And we talk about like the weird shit that we did. She was arrested multiple times in, or went in the paddy wagon for, or whatever. Oh yeah. We were like not good kids, but I was always like the tag along kid, but, um, no, my parents didn't fucking know shit. And we were doing crazy shit. People were getting, you know, pregnant in eighth grade. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have sex until Right, later. right. No, but other kids were. Yeah. Well, so the reason that my questions today are all about like how you were parented is, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of parents of our generation, I mean, like not our parents' generation, but yeah. us. Um, are making really different choices than their parents made with them because this is widely understood that the Gen Xers were just feral and yes. like left yes. to do whatever they wanted. And people have a variety of opinions about whether or not that was good or bad. With the um, technology age, I can find I can pinpoint where my child is at any moment because I have right. find my iPhone. I can see literally where they are. <gasps> um, so, for example, when my son goes out and I check in on him to see where he is, I don't call him. I just look up find my iPhone, and you know we 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 don't live very far from the border to the state of New York. But every right. time I look and he's in New York, I'm like, is this okay? Can yeah. He be- 
it never occurred to me, you know, that I, that I would, I would just assume like he would be hanging out in our town. It didn't occur to me that he'd be going, you know, they going so, to Manhattan? So anyway, no, no, they just, they're, they're like in Westchester Uh-oh. County kind of area, but it's two things. It's parenting differently than I was parented, but also I was not a kid who I like broke no rules. Right. You know, I never drank in high school. I never did drugs. I had a boyfriend, but I didn't sleep with him until I was a senior. I, um, you know, I, I just, there wasn't, so it's all, and then Aaron's experience yeah. was kind of actually really similar to yours. In fact, I think he would have answered every single question the same as you did, which I find really fascinating. I think, I think there is an element too of, I don't know if it's class yes. or. Yes, it's the North know, I know you're sure. The North right, Shore, dude, right, right. of 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 uh, Illinois okay. was fucking like a John Hughes movie on crack. Like you, you you're like what? You're doing what? We got yeah. a hotel room in seventh grade. My friends, or maybe eighth grade, I don't remember. Eighth grade, my friends' parents got us a hotel. They we were in Lake Geneva, and they had a house in Lake Geneva. Got us a hotel room. On the other side of town in eighth grade. <gasps> I, I'm agog. I, I'm I'm eighth completely. Great. I'm drinking vodka and in a hotel room in in I think it was eighth grade or maybe freshman year. And I was like, yeah, wasted uh, in a hotel room in Lake Geneva. My parents did. Also, let me tell you something. We smoked <sighs> cigarettes, smoked, smoked, smoked freshman year, smoked sophomore year. I would come home. So my friends, my twin friends had the all third floor all to themselves. We'd smoke, we drank, we did whatever. Then I'd go home. I'd reek of cigarettes. My mom would ask nothing. She smoked too. So what she can wow, say, but still wow, she, wow. yeah. So, okay. Well, so basically where I live in the context in which I'm parenting is that is the North shore, but I wasn't raised here or there. And, and my, and it's not, I'm not even going to really say my parents are strict to me. Like strict parents are, I have a strict definition of strict to me. Right. A strict is like, you have to have these certain grades and right. you have to do these, you know, which is kind of how I try to parent. I try to make everybody really accountable for their actions. I try, not that I'm, I succeed at it. It's just always like, it's always my intention. It's always my goal to get there. But Aaron was raised on the North shore and he just has, or like, or like his thing is his parents were all about the grades. So he thinks it's unacceptable that anybody should have anything less than an A. But now we have this thing where we can see their grades every day. We can oh, see their no. grades in progress. It's oh not my like, God, no. It's not like when you got the report card mailed home. It's like, I know what their grades are every single day. And we have this fight at the beginning of every term because if there's only been one assignment and they didn't do it or they didn't do well, yeah, on they have like a D or an F. Yeah. And, they're going, and they're going, but mom, it's, it's, uh, it's only been one. You know, we just started the term. Like there's only one assignment. And you know, to me, I'm going, this is an F. This right. is unacceptable. You right. can't have this. Uh, so there's certain things that I feel very strict about. And then other things that I feel lax about. And I'm just like, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of, we humans, we compare ourselves to other people. I'm just really curious, like how other people are doing it and how other people had it done for them. Yeah. So. I mean, I don't know what I would do. I know the thing about the grades because my friend Jisa has a daughter and, and they, she looks at her grades. You can look at them every day. And like Jisa, I don't know if she looks at them every day or not. I have no idea, but I would be like obsessing. You know why I would be obsessing? Because 
for me, it would be like a total reflection on me. That's it. I mean, I would be worried about the kid like 10%, maybe 25, but most of it would be, I, I mean, I got a grooming report about Doris, like how she did at grooming and I, and they give you a report card and I was f- having a panic attack when they said they were going to give me a grooming report. I'm like, oh, did she do? And it, when I saw it said, well behaved, I like relaxed. I didn't care what the rest of the report said. So I, right. I, yeah. that is not, yeah. that is weird. And for me, I'm saying, and I think that's how yeah. I'd be as a parent. And what, I don't think my heart can take it. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Kelly Curran. Kelly is an actor from a very special program at Fordham University that I can't wait for you guys to hear all about. She is on the Gilded Age, season two of which just finished filming and should be out in the spring. So we're so excited to share this conversation that we had with Kelly Curran. Please enjoy. start because but well this is an hbm okay so i just got a email from my ophthalmologist because i had gone in and like ah my new you know i have these like jeffrey Dahmer serial killer glasses that i love but like they're crooked right so i went in to fix them i literally got an email that said dear jen your face is crooked not the glasses No, no, it's perfect. I'm sorry. It's like super, it's like super a metaphor for my life. Like, it's like you're actually the problem, not the glasses. Anyway, go ahead, Gina, with your start. Wait, do they make, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Now that you brought this up, I have to like. It's like really bizarre because I noticed I wore them on a self-tape. I had a self-tape for something. And I was like, this is really weird. Like, they look straight and I put them on and my reader was like, ah, let's just do it. And I was like, yeah, but, so I'm like tilting my head in the tape yeah i couldn't figure it out so i like go all indignant to the the place in pasadena i'm like hey my glasses that i paid 350 dollars they are crooked i went through this whole thing and then the ophthalmologist took measurements and then did some stuff and said okay we'll replace them but like let me and then i literally just got an email that says Jen, your face is crooked, not the glasses. Love, Dr. Lee. Or no, not love, not love, from Dr. Lee. And I was like, oh. I love it so much. You'll have to do the thing like people have to do if they have one leg shorter than the other. They have to get a lift in their well, shoe. Yeah, you need to get a yeah. little pad well, put on the one side. But the problem is they, did, they didn't tell me like what part of my fucking face is. So it could be no. the eyebrow. I mean, yeah. I have these weird eyebrows that thanks to my Colombian mom. I, it could be all sorts of fucking defects in me. But like, so now oh I'm like God. this. I'm Whoa. like trying to figure it out. What a journey we're on already okay. this morning. What a journey. Yes. So congratulations, yes. Kelly Curran. You survived theater school. Very, very, very is, uh, is like an under statement right you're thriving oh my gosh it's it's wild it's been it's been amazing it's been an amazing uh couple of years but it's been like an amazing um journey since the beginning and not without its extreme 
emotional ups and downs and periods of unemployment and dozens and dozens of day jobs and all that stuff. But I certainly feel like very blessed, um, especially the last few years during the pandemic to have this wonderful job on, uh, on the Gilded Age to have like a consistent, steady job is just like such a blessing. So wonderful. And this is exactly what I wanted to ask you about, because I don't think I don't think people are naive to the fact that nobody's an overnight success and everybody has, you know, tons and tons and tons of years of training and hard luck and experiences behind them. But I do love to just tell that story a little bit more for, for people, you know, um, how long did you feel like you were in that phase where maybe every six months you go, should I really be doing this? Oh, you know, it's a, it's, it's funny. I, the one thing that I think has like allowed me to survive in this profession is like this sort of astonishing, mysterious faith that this is the the highest expression of myself in the world, that this is the thing that most aligned with what with what I'm supposed to be doing. So there's always been that through line just in my center, even through the periods of unemployment, even like, yeah, like even when I had to, even when I've, uh, you know, didn't get enough weeks to earn my health insurance or, you know, all, all those things, or I was working day jobs that I just like, that were just like destroying my soul. You know what I mean? Even in those periods, I, I, it never became a thing where I was like, I should stop. I should well, what what up. did you do? What was the thought then? Like, like say you're at the shithole day job that's paying your bills, probably barely in, in Manhattan or whatever, but like you're doing, what is mm-hmm, the thing mm-hmm. you, you weren't like, oh, I'm going to stop. But like, what was the thing that went through your head? Like just hold on or how did you get through? Yeah. I think it was just like, okay, what are the pillars that keep you healthy that keep you grounded, that keep you curious, like what are those things? And then it was like finding ways to stay connected to the community of people making theater that I found interesting. You know, it was like finding ways to like, to be young enough to get like student discounts or volunteer to do stage readings, like, you know, read the stage directions of a stage reading or volunteer to be like an usher or whatever, and just cling to these opportunities to be a part of what I came here to do even if that part was very peripheral uh, or even if it was as a spectator. So, yeah. So what I'm hearing is like, there was like a sense, like what I'm getting from this is this like your ego didn't, because most people, what happens is the ego says or whatever. And I'm not even saying it's a bad thing, but ego is like, fuck this shit. Like I am now whatever age I want to be earning enough and making a living. And then they pivot and do something else. But it sounds like you were still able, like the word periphery is really interesting because there's not a lot of people that, can stand to be, especially artists and actors particularly, can stand to be on the periphery without being on the stage or the thing or the TV. So it sounds like you had some kind of thing where it was like, this is still part of the action, right? Like being a stage ringer. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it was still, I still found 
things nourishing. Like seeing like a bad play, you're always like, oh my God, you know, or whatever, like seeing some terrible production. Obviously that's not the case, but but I would still kind of, I would get nourishment from seeing something that I thought, oh, yes, that's, that's what I want to be doing. And how do I, and then it would get my mind going, like how do I create that opportunity? And I would do kind of audacious things. Like I would reach out to people who were artistic directors or, and I would say, I'm really interested in your work. I've seen it. Would you like to get coffee? I did that a few times to people and I've, and I've been like, I'm, I went to Fordham. I'm like a young actor and I'm really inspired by what you do. And I was, I don't even know if I do that now. You know what I mean? Like at this point in my, <laughs> I reach out on social media. I think I've grown no, no, shyer. No. You should yes. do it because now you're on a show. So now you could just even do it even more. Like people would meet with you, but I do it. I'm nobody nowhere. And I'm over here and I'm like, Hey, showrunner. And they usually, if you write a good enough email, they'll take you up on it. Now, look, they may not give you a job or anything, but that's not what we're going for. We're going for the we're trying to get information. So you were, yes, and yeah, connection. So you were, it sounds like connection. And the other thing, Gina, we've had people on that also talk about this, where the theater is the glue that keeps them from losing their mind as they pursue higher paying film, TV, whatever jobs. So you're part of a theater, right? You do a lot of theater still, right? I do a lot of theater. Yeah. And that was really how I started, I once actually, I once went back to Fordham. They asked me to come back and speak to their like senior class, you know, of theater students and stuff. And and it was like a senior audition class that was being run by a um, taught, excuse me, by a casting director. And I remember this casting director saying to me at the time, she's like, you're, it's so funny. You've got this very like old timey career that doesn't seem to happen that much anymore. It's sort of like the, the trajectory of like a Cherry Jones or an Allison Janney of like, you know, I got out of school, I landed this amazing job with this company called The Acting Company that um, they would they would take young actors, usually like recently graduated actors from different programs, do plays and repertory and tour the country and then bring them back to New York for an off-Broadway run and the opportunity to perform in front of the New York What the community. hell? I mean, I saw and, this on social oh my media, God. Kelly, but I, this is amazing. And why, is it only from it, New York uh, programs? Why did we do no. this, Gina? No, I don't believe so. Why didn't we do this? <laughs> did you, how did you get I mean, so it's, we have so many questions, but okay, so let's back yeah. up a little bit. Yeah. So you're, where are you from okay. and okay. how did you end up at Fordham's? Because that is, I really want to know that. Okay, before I get to, I'll. So I'm from, <laughs> I'm from upstate New York, just outside, sort of, um, just outside of Albany, New York. And uh, I, I did theater in high school and I loved it, but um, we did we did a lot of musicals at my school and, and different like, you know, youth theater stuff around Albany growing up. They had a lot of musical programs. And I have an older sister who is an incredible singer. She is amazing. She is like, she's, she's really marvelous. And so I grew up with my older sister being like this, you know, star um, singer, actress, person. And... Uh, and I was always like, oh, Michaela's little sister, Michaela's little sister. Yeah, she does the plays too. You know what I mean? Um, and so when it came time to go to school, I think I think I thought like, oh, I should do something practical, which, which like get a, get a degree in English that's practical. Sure. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I entered, I was really, really, I was really on, on the ball. Um, so I, I entered Fordham as an intended English major. And I knew they had 
a, like a theater program there, but I didn't necessarily know how great it was. It was kind of pure luck that I ended up going to Fordham at Lincoln Center because I visited it and I just like loved the energy. I don't know how to describe it other than like I got there and I felt at home in a way that I didn't on a, on a lot of other of my college campus visits. And so when I got accepted, I, I chose to go there and I thought, oh, I'll start as a drama minor. I'll take some classes and I'll audition for some plays to, to make sure. friends and meet people. And I got there and I started classes and I, and I started auditioning for plays and I got very quickly cast in a lot of plays. And I started- Of course you did. <laughs> Just like- <laughs> Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that I'm really aware of because I had a sister who was like the star of my family. And like what happens is the best thing that can happen to us and is that we can go away from the family and see because I got to school and was like, well, wait a second. I have I'm good at this yeah. too. Yeah. And it's no fault of theirs. It's Ooh, not about them. No. It's about like being like, wait, I can shine in this way. I'm so glad that you like went away from home. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. You, you got there and you're like, you, you're like, I'll just, we have so many guests that are like, I'll just dabble. Like yes. I'll just audition. Right. You know, like I'll just see what happens. And then they're like cast immediately. So what was the first thing you were cast in at Fordham? Do you remember? Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was a Sarah Kane play. It was 448 psychosis. Have you, do you know this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a very, very uh, dark, Play. Bold move for Fordham. Bold. Yes, it was. It was a student-directed production. So they did. So they had a number of student-directed productions uh, throughout the year, and then they had like four main stage productions where professional directors would come in and direct, or or some of our professors who were also professional directors, you know, would come in and um, direct the plays. But but they had like so many student productions, and that's what was amazing about it. Is it was um there was like always something happening and so much you could potentially be a part of. And, uh, and it was a kind of a small program. The classes were not particularly large. I think, I think my graduating class by the time we got to the year I graduated was only like 12 actors. Wow. Wait a minute. So this is, so this is Fordham at Lincoln center. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So that's where they'll program. Even if you're an English person, you're English major, you're at Lincoln center. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I think maybe you had the opportunity to be at either for for different program, different courses of study. But the theater program was specifically located right. there, and that was the campus that I visited and was like, "This, I like this one. I want to go. I want to go here." You know. But but you you were still like an undercover actor, yes. like when you started. Yes. If I were to go, I'm not going to go, Gina. But I always threaten to go to all these programs. But if I were to go, like when the English major still you're at Lincoln Center yeah. is what you're telling yes. us that's amazing yeah okay yeah. all right you get cast in the psychosis play yes and are you like this is where I belong I'm a star or how do you <laughs> I don't know I mean I think it took me a minute but it took me like halfway through the first semester I think I started to be like oh you have a skill set this is not just like what you did for fun extracurricularly as a kid it was but but it but you have a skill set like you are a peer of the people in this program and you excel at certain things. And I, I could sense that I excelled at, at um, heightened language texts in particular. Like there's something about rhythm and poetry and language that I just would get really excited by and love to, to, to sort of dive into like a puzzle and try to figure out, you know, and, um, and it was like a particular thing that I was like, 
I finally started to be like, no, you're good at this. And, and I think my, and I think my desire to, to do it finally sort of like, uh, overwhelmed all of the logical part of my brain that was like, this is a bad idea for your life. Like, this is very, this is going to be stressful and unstable. And you don't know if you can, you know what I mean? And I think it took, it took a minute for my courage to sort of like outsize my logical brain that was like, you should do something more practical. You yeah. Know? There's something to that. There's because Boz was right to reference that we've, we've, it's particularly like in the last six or seven interviews have been people who they went for chemistry, they ended up doing this. There's something to be said for not having that because for me, I had the expectation that I was going to be an actor from the time I was four years old and everything that wasn't just automatic success was really surprising to me. And mm -hmm. it like kind of knocked me down a peg each time. Like, but I just really, I just always thought that this is me and I'm going to be an actor and that's all I'm ever going to do. I'm never going to have to do anything else. And I'm, certainly never going to encounter any adversity. <laughs> yes, yes, I could totally see that. I, yeah. There's something, there's something almost like a, like a strange, uh, beneficial thing of like being able to kind of discover in a stealth way of being able to kind of sure. be like, let me slowly build well, this I mean, thing and see if it yeah, feels. Yeah, you take the pressure off yes, of See, that's the thing with, so is Fordham a conservatory? No, that's the other interesting okay. thing that I wanted to make so, sure I brought up with you guys is. Right. It's like. It's not. No, it's a Jesuit school. So it has a Jesuit core curriculum. So no matter what you're there for, you have to take a certain amount of classes in like sociology, anthropology, mathematics, science, all that stuff. And that holds true for the theater department and the, um, the Alvin Ailey Dance School is also affiliated with Fordham. So in our program, we had students who were who were in a conservatory dance program at the Ailey School that were also taking all of the core curriculum, like working so hard, like incredible artists, incredible athletes working so hard. And um, and that was something that we were all like right, you know, adjacent to and, and could watch and could see their performances and their training. And we were a program that was just a B.A., but they found all these like wonderfully sneaky ways to, as part of, you know, your scene study class, you also had to do this weekly or bi-weekly movement lab or uh -huh. vocal lab, you know, so there were these uh -huh. extra classes that were just part of one grade that they somehow managed to like, so you were getting so all this training. Yeah. What's very clear is that whoever was running that program was really, really astute yes. at when you went there and really amazing at realizing that like, okay, like we're in this container, but that doesn't mean that we don't, we're not going to become like a top contender in terms of training people for the theater and for, yes. you know, as actors. Yes. And so that is, that is brilliant. It also speaks to looking outside the box for education for college students. Yes. So like you could say most people also, Gina, that I would say that come on the show that have like, I don't know about better, but like find their way seem to investigate thoroughly the schools for the most part that they are going to and feel comfortable or at home d despite like not about the conservatory, the name, the, yeah. whatever it's yeah. mostly like oh I felt at home here like someone else was talking about the program mm -hmm. in like Arkansas or somewhere mm -hmm. where they're like no no this is my jam yeah even though it's not 
name. So totally. And not that Fordham doesn't have a name, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. It's not Juilliard right. per se. Right. And so anyway, so you're there. And then when are you like, were you like, is your experience at Fordham where like you, the, were you like the jam, like the lead and all the things, or did you play weird roles or what was your experience like as a student there? Well, it was like an incredible, um, it was, it was, I was there during like these, these really incredible years with all these in, amazing actors. So by like my sophomore year, I was getting a lot of great roles and a lot of parts, both in the main stage and, and the student directed productions. And I think uh, I could feel, I could feel that I was like, you know, among the people who were getting cast a lot, but, but like there were incredible actors all of, in all of the classes around. So, um, just to like name, name a few, like uh, particularly the women, um, uh, Heather Lind was the year above me, Michaela McManus, um, Taylor Schilling, Betty, Betty Gilpin was uh, oh my yeah God. i mean there there was a whole but i mean it was an incredible like magic yeah. it's like yes. those years you hear about yeah yes. those those time periods yeah okay. like really yeah, marvelous yeah, yeah. and these are just the these are just um the people who are currently acting and have a certain right. amount of exposure you know i think like there were a, a lot of people there who were you know, just as talented, that's a sort of a subjective thing who went on to do different things who, for whatever reason, you know what I mean? These are just the ones that like people will, people will probably recognize sure. their names. They're also, they also happen to be like really fucking good. Yes. Like, like yes. also you guys, you guys are good actors. So it's not, it's not also a fluke. Like right. I always want to say like, there's something about a magic period of time where you're just like, Oh, this is like when Steppenwolf started yes. or like when, you know, you had John C. Riley and uh, Jillian, whatever, at DePaul or like yes. whatever. There's like a Jillian, there's like a time period. So, okay, you were, you were, ma- you were in this sort of magic time period yeah. and it sounds like it worked. Yes, like yes. Is. And I think like the thing, and I know this is very like, I had, I had a good experience there. I felt very um, encouraged. I felt, I felt like safe as a creative person in in the rooms there and stuff. So I know this is like not, you know, um, I don't mean to make this like a fluffy thing, but like I did have a really nourishing experience there. And I think like part of it was because we were in New York City and because we had the, the director of the program at the time was this actor, Lawrence Sakharov, who sort of came of age in the theater in the 1960s in like the downtown oh, theater. And yeah, he yeah, yeah. knew everybody he knew everybody and he had a long career and so he would he would make a phone call I think basically I think this is probably how it worked he would make a phone call and he would get actors to come in to teach our classes who happen to be in the city working on this or that and and so like our like my scene study classes not just like master class but like semester-long scene study classes were taught by Marion Seldes and Kate Burton and my Shakespeare my Shakespeare teacher was Roger Reese like I mean just extraordinary teachers for whole semesters because it was like an adjunct thing they could teach once a week on a Monday they could come in for three hours and teach and then go do their play on Broadway and and so we had these teachers that are just like mind-blowingly you know by the way, this is the second time Kate Burton's name has come up um, on this podcast. Rodney Toe works with her at USC. She's a professor at USC right now. Oh, she's um, amazing. So, uh, Boz, earlier you used the word ego in describing something like what your reaction would have been versus somebody else. And, it, and that just helped me to realize, like, there's a direct 
correlation between the height of the ego of the institution, which is usually higher at a conservatory, like thinking they're, mm-hmm. there's that f- phrase in Spanish, right. secre muy muy, like they think a lot, a lot about themselves versus a program versus a program Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that just like hey let's do you know let's let's have a let's do a theater major we're in new york like there's no end to the amount of talent around here i really feel like the more a a programmer or you know takes itself seriously and thinks it's so precious you know kind of the more you you get that vibe and it's less nurturing i guess that's what i'm getting at it's so wonderful that you had a nurturing experience because i feel like that's more possible when there's less ego at play. Yes, yes, I 100% agree, 100%. And that that like sort of rings true in a lot of areas. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like find that a lot that like So okay, so you're you you have all this exposure to these amazing teachers. Mm-hmm. You're at Fordham mm-hmm. and then it comes time to graduate. Did you have like a showcase or how did that? So we have a showcase. It was very, it was pretty small. It was pretty, I don't know how many, you know, how many of like the big agencies or anything really showed up. And of course I was like d- deeply awkward about it. Like I, I don't even remember the scenes I picked, but I remember thinking like, in very quick hindsight, I was like, that was a bad choice. Like, those were bad choices. Like, oh, no. You know, you know, did you do, okay, so did you do like Nikki Silver? I did Nikki Silver. Yes, yes. Did you like, do Nikki Silver? Oh, it was such yeah. a thing, right? And like, why? why? It was like such a thing oh. for me in 98. I'm like, this is a great scene. I'm like, this fucking makes no sense. Also, <laughs> it's it's not right. And I think there's, ta- I was talking about child abuse at yes. one point. Yes. I, I, like abusing a child. Oh. Like, Come on. But anyway, I, know, I tried. I, know. I tried. So and I you think don't like, remember what you did. No, but yeah. I think I, I remember like resenting having to put myself in a casting box. You know what I mean? I remember right. feeling like that's what I had right. to do, even if that's like a false idea. I had that sense and I resented it. And I was like, this is bullshit. I'm an actor. I'm supposed to be able to do anything. Like, I don't want to be pigeonholed. And the tough thing is like, that doesn't really help you when you're doing a showcase, having that mindset. But no. I was young and like, what do you, you know? No. Yeah. It's not like yeah, and also it's feisty, and it also speaks to your wanting to do a lot of things. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's actually a good sort of fighting spirit thing. Oh, I'm glad I'm but, glad you think so. Um, oh yeah, but, like look, Gina it reminds me of Gina. It reminds mm, me of Gina was not. I don't think being put in a box. No, but yeah, but I had the same problem of like. I so didn't want to put myself in the box. I didn't put myself in any category whatsoever. Didn't know who I was. Yeah. So then therefore didn't know how to sell myself to, you know, to anybody. Right. Right. And that's the thing, like having to figure out at, at that, at such a kind of tender age, still like who you, who you are, how you're perceived, what, you know, it was, it's a lot to do at a, at a time when you're kind of still very much sure. evolving. So- were you like, this is whose career, like whose career, do, were you looking at like a Cherry Jones and being like, I want that? Oh, or yeah. did you, did you have, yeah. What did you yeah. want to do when you graduated? I wanted to do, and I thought I could, I didn't realize that I couldn't. I wanted to do theater forever. I wanted to do theater forever. And I wanted to, my ultimate goal was like, I want to make a life out of doing theater and I want to be respected by my peers that I were. And that was like, that was like, it. and and I don't say it like I, that was really it. I was like, I was like Fiona Shaw, Cherry Jones. I was like looking at these, these people and I was like, that's it. Like what they're doing is how I want to spend my life and my time. 
Right. Um, Did you want to start a theater company? Were you one of those types? No, no, no not necessarily. I want, I think I, I would have liked being a part of a theater company, which is like what I did after I graduated. Like, so, so I think I, I started like, I had a couple meetings from the showcase and I started like freelancing with this very small agency that I got the sense was like, not a, not a great situation, but I was like, okay. It was just like some guy working out of his Winnebago being like, yeah, I know a ton of fancy <laughs> exactly. directors. Like you're like, where is this office? And what am I? You're like, it's in Yonkers? <laughs> yeah. So, They've got like a 1-800 number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Something doesn't fit sure. right. Sure. Um, so I, I, I knew that I was like a little bit on my own and I was like incredibly scared and incredibly like overwhelmed of like how, what's the first step after this? And I, I wrote right after I graduated, I wrote like, you know, snail mail letters with my headshot to, to three different companies uh, asking for an audition, including theater companies. Yeah. The, the non-equity company of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival uh, the non-equity ensemble of Shakespeare in the Park, because I knew they did non-equity ensemble who understudied the show. And um, and then this company, the acting company, which is an equity company, but I knew that you could get accepted and then they would give you your equity card if you got into the show. And so I had, and so I got these auditions. I managed to get the auditions. Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. So you wrote snail mail and you were like, Hey, I just graduated. This is who I am. Here's my headshot. Can I come and audition? And I just want to put it out there because I'm a huge cold emailer kind of a person Mm -hmm. that you actually, now you can't be totally bonkers. Um, but you did what you needed to do and you got fucking three auditions. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which was amazing, which was like great. So I got these auditions and the two first, what the two, it was like the Shakespeare in the park and then the Oregon Shakespeare festival were the two first ones and I didn't get them. And, and I remember thinking they were like, okay, auditions, but not, you know, like I didn't, the spark thing right. didn't happen. And sure. so I got to like the final one. I think this must've been in August of, of 2006 after I graduated in June and and I was like, and it was for, it was for this company, the acting company and the production they were doing that season was an, an adaptation of Jane Eyre with only eight actors playing all the parts. So the characters were going to double and several of the roles were cast already, but they were looking for an actor. The, I think like one of the only roles for women left, they were looking for an actor to play uh, Helen Burns at the beginning of the book. And then, and then the 10 year old French ward that Jane tutors, Mr. Rochester's ward. And I thought I'm five, eight. I got this low voice. I thought there's no way there's no way. And I, and I was like at the end of my rope and I was like, what am I going to do? This was the last of three auditions. What am I going to do if I don't get this? I was, I was, I think like sad. I was like, you know, and, and, I had to go do monologues and I did Lady Percy's monologue from Henry four. Sure, oh, I love that mom. What a character. Um, so I did her and I think I did like a Wendy Wasserstein contemporary monologue mm-hmm. and I did those two back to back and the director. Um, and I was so sort of at the end of my rope that I just like, everything was like laid out on the table. Sure. Like it was just one of the best auditions I ever gave because I, I had nothing to lose by I wish it was on tape. I, I know, on tape. right? I would love to have seen it. Oh my yeah, god! I love those. I love the the sort of yeah, like this is it yeah, kind of yeah. like I don't give a fuck and yes. I give a fuck 
at the same time. Yes. Okay. So you do it and you felt like, oh, I this was a spark. Yes. Well, the director, Davis McCallum, this wonderful director, stood up out of his chair and he goes, you're great. He's like, you are great. He was like, where did you? And he was like, you are great. And I was like, where did you? I oh. almost started crying. I was like, hold it together, Kelly. I was like, hold it together. <laughs> just, and I, and I mean, it was. That, that's I mean, amazing. That was Wait, so yeah. I'm, you know, it must have been so painful for you to be compared to Cherry Jones and have somebody stand up and tell you that you're amazing. I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through such a oh, difficulty. <laughs> but but here's, here's what I have to say. My ex, this is a fun experience for me because to meet you in person, and to see you in the Gilded Age is so that these things are worlds apart. It's such a little nasty on the show. <laughs> and you and Jerry Hood are my favorite in the whole oh, in the whole show. Thank That's why I reached you. out to you. Oh my god! Um, so I, I, you know, villain is not the first thing that comes to mind when I see you. If I was looking at your headshot, I wouldn't be like, oh, she'd make a great villain. Mm-hmm. I think of you as the Ange. You, know, you do have the deep voice, which may right. have influenced, you know, right, right, this particular totally. casting. Mm-hmm. But what is it like to play a villain? Oh my God, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. She's she's so fun because she is like a messy character in a world that's trying to be very pristine as like part of the show, you know? And so she gets to sort of like push all the boundaries of the storyline and she pushes all the boundaries of her world. And it's so fun. I mean. What, what, um, okay. So, so tell us how that came about. Like, did you have a, well, first of all, it makes perfect sense that you are great with heightened text. You are like, it sounds like a Shakespeare nut in some ways and you, okay. All the things, right. So you're, 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 you're busting your butt as an actor and you're in plays and you're living your life. And obviously you have an agent and they're like, Hey, here's an audition. Did you just, was it just a random audition for Gilded Age? No, what was, what was great is like, like at some point when I was like 26, I started to develop a relationship with the casting office, Telsey and company. Uh Uh-huh. I like Telsey and company. They're marvelous. They're such great people there. Um, And so I booked a job early, like the second time I ever went in for them, I booked the job, which was understudying the roles of Harper and the Angel in the off-Broadway revival of Angels in America at the Signature Theater back in like 2010, 11. And so I I got that job. And ever since that moment, Telsey, like slowly but surely would like, they'd think a part was right for me. They'd call me in. And even if I didn't get it, which most of the time I did not, they... I think they 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 stayed champions of my work. They knew I would show up prepared. They knew I would show up making choices, you know? And so they kept calling me in. So more consistent than any representation I had in the early part of my career. Now I have a manager that I've been working with for about five years and she is wonderful. She has like really changed, changed uh, my life in a lot of ways with her, her support and her work. But, um, but more than any, you know, agent up to that point, Telsey were the people who were championing me to different directors and different, and they would kind of put me out for bigger and bigger projects as time went on. And so in the fall of 2019, I was working with my newer manager and, 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 you know, things were going along and going well. And, uh, and Telsey called me in for the show, The Gilded Age. And, uh, and 
we had one audition that was like a sort of like a pre-screen just just with the with the camera and the casting director and uh and the character at the time was not american she was not a new yorker she was she was i don't think i'm supposed to talk about it too much they've like sort of been like no don't but um but she had a dialect and and uh so I had like two days to prepare this dialect, but it was one that I had actually had to do in different plays before. So it was, it was in there, yay you know theater. what I mean? Yay theater. Yay theater. <laughs> yes. And, and they didn't, it appeared to me that they didn't call in a lot of women. I knew some of the women who went in for this role because it was like a certain kind of actor that they knew would be able to sort of pull the dialect up in like, you know, 48 hours and whatever. So it was a smaller group. But I, I found the characters so delicious and so much fun that I was just like, oh, I love that. I love her. I was like, she is great. <laughs> I was like, she's kind of like sultry and, and pretentious. And like, there's something so wonderful about her. And, um, and I had watched with my parents for years, Downton Abbey. And so I had the sort of rhythms of his writing. You know, I had some experience of listening to that. And, um, and so I went in. Uh, did did a, a good enough job at the first audition at the pre-screen to get called back the next day just with the executive producer and director uh, Michael Engler which was amazing and weirdly in like a mirroring experience and this is like the only two times this has ever happened to me specifically um, I did the audition and Michael was like great and and do it again but like what about this and then the two of us and I was like oh yeah like that and he was like yeah and then we would and it felt like a rehearsal it felt like we were kind of rehearsing it and I was and it was fun and yes yes exactly so it's interesting it's like I I always thought everything people's always said about everything was bullshit it's Mm. not true Mm. so like the thing that people say about it's part luck it's part this, it's part this. I always thought that is the dumbest thing. It's actually true. It's actually like true. The luck of, it's not luck in that, uh, that the casting liked you and championed you. It's right. not luck that you worked your ass off. It is luck that he happened to be the director on this piece and the writer and that the, and that you showed up yeah. and then you yeah. kicked ass and exactly. then you collaborated. Right. About collaboration. So you felt like, you had ownership, which also, by the way, then takes us, I believe, as actors out of our head and yes. can get us into the room as a human being. Mm-hmm. Be mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, I'm here. I'm present. And then you, it's like a, the synergy between you. So, okay. Yeah. With the, at that second audition, you were like, he was like, that's great. And you had fun. Yeah. And then what you go away and are like, what the fuck? Or did they just cast you or how did it work? Yeah. I mean, I, he, he was great. And he did that thing again at the end where he was like, where, where did you come from? Where have you been? And I was like, I've been working in the American theater for like, for like 14 years. Yeah. And, uh, You're like, I've been here. Yeah. I've been, here. I've been around. I've been around. Um, but, uh, but he was, he was like, Lovely. And then I left and, uh, and then like a few weeks went by and I, and my manager called me and she was like, you're strongly in consideration. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, and then like another week went by and then I was actually getting, getting coffee with a college friend with a Fordham theater program friend who I hadn't seen in a long time. My dear friend, Tim Kubart, who's, uh, an amazing musician. He's like a Grammy award winning children's musician. He's amazing. Um, 
and we were getting coffee in my neighborhood and I was like, Tim, I'm so, my phone rang and I was like, Tim, I'm so sorry. I have to take this call because I'm in the running for this thing and I don't know. And I got on the phone and he pulled out his cell phone and, and just started recording me. I and that. I got on the phone. It was the cutest thing. And I got on the phone and it was both my manager and agent and they were like, you got the job. Oh my God. You're going to be the on chills. the today. I got the oh chills. My God. And, and Tim was like, we're switching to wine. And he went to the <laughs> counter and he was like, we need two glasses of wine. And it was like Oh, that's fantastic. And it, and it was amazing that it was that, you know, because because in the first season, she, she was a recurring character. So you did I didn't have to do the whole thing of like testing as a series regular and, you know, meet it. it right. it's just because of the nature of the show and how many roles they were trying to cast and who needed to approve what, that's how quick the process was. Yeah. It was like, yeah. it was like just Michael and Michael showed the tape to everyone and they made a decision amongst themselves. And a few weeks later, that was that. So what's crazy. What's, what's Julian mm -hmm. Lowe's relation? Is he just the creator or it does, is, has he had further involvement? Oh, uh, he, well, he's, he's present when he can be. It's been, it's so tricky because we were supposed to start, our production start date was March 16th of 2020. Oh, of course it was. Oh, of shit balls. Yeah. And which was so interesting to hear Tremel talk about this when Tremel came yeah, on and, this, and like such a similar thing happened vibe, with him yeah. with Severance. And um, and uh, yeah, the same thing happened to us where our start date was March 16th of 2020 and <sighs> they were amazing and they kept us posted and they would do these Zoom meetings trying to encourage us with like what they've been doing and when they're going to be able to get it up. And like they, they, you know, they really kept us assured and informed, which was incredible when I knew a lot of people whose jobs just like evaporated in this. Yeah. Like, well, the other thing way. to know is that like, it's the ultimate actor weirdness of you fucking booked a huge thing. And then same with Tramel. And then you're like, wait, what? I'm not. And you have no control. Nobody does. And this is not even a thing where you can like blame an exec at HBO, no. right? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. This is this is whoever you believe in God, what a Buddha, whatever saying, Oh no. And then were you, okay. So you had zooms, but you were like, is this still going to happen? Or did you think, Oh yeah, of course this is still going to happen. Or like, I, how did you live your life? I did. I did think it was still going to happen. I did think it was still going to happen because they did an amazing thing several months in where they advanced us half of our salaries. And they said, it was amazing. Oh, and, and, and they were like, please be assured we are committed to this. The network's committed to this. Like this group is committed to this. This is happening. And if this helps Way you during the pandemic, they were amazing. They Way were amazing. And like the stress, the sort of the stress that that relieved, the, the like space that that opened up in my brain in terms of like at least like, I mean, it was it was great. It was such an incredible blessing. So I recently rewatched all of Downton Abbey and I rewatched mm. season one of Gilded Age. When does season two come out, by the way? I believe uh, April. I believe April of 23. So it's still a ways off, but but we just wrapped this week, this oh, past week. That's amazing. Oh, that means I'm going to have a great spring because Succession's <laughs> next season comes out then too. So I'm going to be like yes. pig and shit. Um, so yes. I'm really curious about like, you know, the, the story we hear a lot in this context I'm about to describe is how the American version of The Office had all this, um, you know, worry and, and many people around mm -hmm. town were saying like, oh, they should never do it. They're going to ruin it, you know, and it turned out to be like one yeah. of the best shows of all time. Did, was there any kind yeah. of that expectation or fear or 
feeling like you needed to live up to Downton Abbey? I, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily in comparison to Downton Abbey, but it was, it, I think this show, the content of the show was a little bit of a departure for HBO. I think they were trying to reach an audience that they had not particularly catered to like the PBS audience that, that crowd. And I think the goal, I, I know part of the goal was to get new people signing on to HBO to be interested in the content of HBO. And so there was a lot of pressure to, to succeed at that. And I think we knew there would be natural comparisons to Downton, of course, you know, um, so going into it, like having now completed the second season, I think coming back to the second season, you could definitely tell there was like a weight off people's shoulders. There was like a, oh, okay, let's go. And there was like a little bit of like uh, freer, more courageous, you know, quicker, quicker work happening in that way. Because I think in the first season too, we're all figuring out together who these characters are and what the fabric is and what the landscape is. Because it's this huge landscape. It's these multiple worlds that you're you know, creating in the same place. And, uh, and I think in now having completed season two, I can see that more clearly that there was definitely pressure. There was pressure in season one to make the show successful and to, and because we know that's such a loyal audience, the Downton audience and stuff that like to, to, to not have it be necessarily the same because there's a lot of differences in in the show and like the style of the show and just just it being set in America the context is like it's so so totally different but um but to create something exciting and sumptuous and um I don't want to say informative because it's a fiction but you know but that's rooted in history and rooted in oh, a historical sure. context, context with accuracy um, but also that has fictional elements that has things that maybe people wouldn't have expected happened or were possible or, you know, uh, whatever. So, so I think there was a lot of pressure to like honor the genre and honor the scope of it. Cause it was, it was just so big. It was so big. Like my first day on the set ended up being in October of 2020. I was finally my first day on set. And the scene we were doing was actually my first appearance in the show where you see me in the background of Bertha walking into her house for the first time. Yes. And there's all these movers, and all these people, you know, working on the house and all this stuff. So it was this big scene with a bunch of background actors and, and a track, the camera was on a track, like moving all around. And this was the first time I was in a room with like anyone other than my immediate family family since wow. March of 2020. Yeah. And I got there and there's like 80 background actors and there's like a hundred crew members. Wow. And I was like in a mansion in a warehouse. And I was like, Oh, I was fuck. so over. I was so overwhelmed. And, and I, at a certain point I was like, I don't know where the camera is. I don't even know where the camera is. And I was like, Kelly, just think of it as like a site specific theater piece and just huh? get in her body and you know what her body is and you, you auditioned with her. Like you found her when you auditioned, just find yes. her you go. And that was like how I calmed myself down enough to actually like get through that first take, but it was so overwhelming, especially after not having seen or interacted oh, with like, anybody. Yeah. That's you know? insane. That's insane because the whole, the whole feeling pervasive feeling during COVID is everything was just so heightened. The risk is heightened and the boredom was heightened and danger, danger, danger. Um, to come out of that world to an extremely heightened, but fictional world. 
I think um, one of the things that makes this like a really timely series is we, we are living in a gilded age, you know, right now. And um, I'm really curious to see the trajectory of the show. I, I loved in Downton Abbey how they kept that thread of the world is changing and we're going to have to change with it. And we can't just be stuck in these sort of class positions or wealth positions. And it's kind of sad that we're having to like relearn this lesson all all over again now. But um, yeah, so a moment of fangirling for, for Carrie Coon, who is like unstoppable. Do you guys talk shop? Do you guys talk about, you know, acting stuff? Yeah, yeah, a bit. Like, absolutely. Like, I think even on that first day, at one point I looked at her and I was like, does it ever get easier? I was like, do you ever get less nervous? And she was like, no. And then she like went and did her thing. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, and uh, and we do. And, and it's been amazing to work uh, in such close proximity with her as our, uh, you know, our characters get to work in such close proximity. And um. And to watch her, this this like woman in like the prime of her life and like the sort of full force of her power and her agency, who's also a mom. And, you know, during the first season, she was pregnant with her second child. And to watch that and to watch her negotiate that, the cameraman negotiate that figure, like, and just see how it's all possible. And also even this season, we were talking and I was like, oh, I had this like, crazy week and normally like the prep work I do before I know I'm going to be filming is like pretty pretty ritualized it's pretty specific I'm such a like nerd and such a like homework person sure. that I have rituals around it and she was like oh my god she was like I was just talking about this with Kira Knightley on the set of the Boston Strangler she was like once you're a mom all that goes out the window because you have like no time left you know what I mean and, and so just to like just to have those casual conversations about like life and how your life keeps evolving and how your artistry keeps evolving and and like the 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 goal is almost to just keep deepening your trust that like you already have everything you need to do this. You know what I mean? I think is like it's it's such an awesome thing to observe in her and to and to watch and and then also just to play with her, just to learn from her as we're like playing together because she is so so much fun and so awesome to get to play opposite. I you mean, know? I love the idea of like. What, what, what I love about this, and it's the same seemingly like on um, Severance and stuff where it's like really masters of the craft, you included, like people who have like, see, and I'm really talking like theater masters when I say that people of the stage that are now on television, I think of the same with like um, Michael Shannon and people like that yeah. who I've worked with where it's like, you're like, oh, oh, this is what this could be. Mm. We could take all the theater training and all the the amazing like preparation. Like mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of television actors may not even know like Right. They just don't know the theater tricks and tr- and and deepening of process. And like to see that on a set, I would be like, "Oh, it's like a masterclass in like yeah. life and how to do things." And also, I love the fact that you said Kelly, this is like a devised sort of site-specific mm-hmm. theater piece. 
yeah. and you fell you fell back on all the theater training yeah. to get you through this moment like huge monumental momentous um television experience yeah. on a set i love that because i feel like a lot of times when i go on set mm-hmm. like all that shit goes out the window and i'm like i have no idea what i'm doing but a friend will often say to me before i uh, would do anything like remember you are a fucking trained theater actor yes. fucking get out there and i'm like yes. all right all right, yes. all right we know what we're doing we had to do all this shit wait, 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 wait. Right. i'm not gonna be scared by the camera just the different things it's just like set pieces oh yeah it's stage management oh yeah so i love that you fell like you relied on that on on your first day on on the set to like keep you grounded and then to be around other theater actors a la carrie coon who's like the same shit she's probably telling herself the same shit too so i just i love that and i i'm i'm mindful of time so i want to ask you about the the scene where you are where you are naked oh Um, yeah not Mm -hmm. not in terms of anything other than how was that for you as a human as a lady Mm -hmm. to do that scene and Mm -hmm. what went into it so anything you want to say about that because i was reading about it online there's a lot of backlash there oh Oh, yeah i know which i found really interesting because i was like it was so tasteful like i don't know why there's so much backlash it's usually probably dudes like white dudes in their 50s trying to control women's bodies probably yeah um but uh tell us about that if you if you could if you want to yeah yeah well i knew from the beginning that there was going to to be at that kind of intimate scene because um, I, I knew early on that that was going to happen. And I think the thing that kept happening, which was a little frustrating, but it wasn't anybody's fault, is like schedule wise, we film based on location. So everything gets filmed out of order, not chronologically. And so this, the day that I had to do that ended up being my wrap day. It was like nine months into filming and it was, so I waited all season long to do that. And of course, like, you know, you look at Morgan and you're like, oh, I'm going to be naked with that guy. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Like everything. So you like try to befriend a person, but there's always that thing of like, well, this, okay, we're going to, okay. But, uh, but during the pandemic, like I did a lot, like, I was like, I knew the thing that would make me comfortable enough to play the scene and not be self-conscious, which is like the whole goal, like when you're acting anytime, but I think especially on camera when it's like, you're so, it's so sensitive and you're so vulnerable. And it's like, um, I, I knew I would be comfortable if I felt good myself, if I felt like I was like exercising and like had like a pretty healthy, you know, diet routine or regimen, you know, and, um, and so I, did a lot of that all year long since I knew this was going to be coming up um, in order to be out of my head on the day. And I think the funny thing that happened is I got less self-conscious about like who would see this, like millions of people seeing it as I did like, oh, I'm going to be naked in front of all my colleagues who I've worked with for nine months and they're so great. And, and that's going to be a little weird that I'm naked in front of my dear friends now. And these people who like, but at the same time, um, the show was so supportive. We had an intimacy coach. The directors called me early on to talk about it. We kept talking about it and we went through like what we were comfortable with and what we weren't. And then it got negotiated by the, the contract is very specific, how many seconds the camera can be on certain body parts and how many, you know, it's, it's very specific. And my manager was involved in those talks and the lawyers at HBO and all that stuff. So it's, they, they really, um, you know, you, well, they you, did it. 
they did it right. Yeah, they like, did it right. This is how they did it right. It is supposed to yes. go. I feel like this production, from what I'm hearing from you and what I've heard about, is like they're doing shit right. Yes. And like, I feel like that's very needed because yes. shit goes wrong so often in totally. everywhere, but especially in Hollywood. So like, totally. okay, so you had and what what's interesting to me is like, do you think you did the is to, to ask you like the the outward preparation, the food and the exercise and the stuff, so that you could feel like what I'm getting is right, that you could feel good in your head about it. And so you weren't fixated on which parts were showing and which jiggly bits might be jiggling and all the things. Exactly. Exactly. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want to be thinking about that. I wanted to be playing the scene. And I felt like I know myself well enough to know that the way I can do that is by just taking care of myself in advance to the best way that I could to like make that happen. And still, and still, still, of course you like, it was a totally new experience. I had to do some nudity on stage, but that's very different. You know, it's very fleeting. It's a limited audience. It's like, you know what I mean? Um, And, and still like when I went and watched the show, I was like, that was, you watched it. I I did watch it. it. I did watch it because I wanted to see what, you know, happened. what did you think? How did it go? How was it watching yourself naked in on television? I mean, awkward. (laughs) It's like, Oh, but, um, but, but I think the thing that I, found was like, I, I personally didn't think it was my best scene work on the show. And I think that, and, and I watched it and I was like, oh, and I was like, but, but, but I was like, you have to forgive yourself. Like, yes, you, you are doing this thing where like you have, the show has so much exposure that there's a risk of failing at a very big level. Like there's a risk that you're going to go out and not do as well as you want to do in every scene, every time. And I personally felt like a little bit disappointed with my own work. And I had to be like, Kelly, it was a new challenge. It was like a new moment. Like it was the first time you ever had to do anything like that. And you were very supportive, but now, you know, and now you've learned, and now you think about like, what would you do differently next time, you know, or what would, um, also, Kelly, Kelly, did you um, pass out on set at all? No, that? no. Okay, no. did you um, <laughs> throw up, pee, or make poop? On- no, oh, thank God. God. Okay, you're fine. You're totally well, fine. It, it yeah. actually, like, <laughs> you're oh my God. Totally fine. And it ended up being like a really fun day. It ended up because it was such a supportive group and such a supportive crew. Um, and it was just Morgan and I all day long. It was like really fun in the end. And, and like, we, and he, like, let me just say, if you have to do something like that, he is such a lovely human being to do that with. I mean, he is so just like naturally has so much integrity and respect for other people and respect for himself. And so, you know, I mean, I, again, it's like a, it's like really falling into the luck bucket in in so many ways. Also, wait, did, did he, pl- did he play the director on Mindhunter? He's the director on Mindhunter, right? Oh, I don't but know. I bald, haven't seen Mindhunter. No, 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 no. More, that's though? Michael Cerverus. I'm but but Morgan plays guy. Carrie Coon's husband. Oh, that's right. Morgan's that's right. That's George. right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's who you're seducing. Okay. Yes. Great. Yes. I just tr- yes. Trying to. Yes. Okay. Trying to and okay. failing. But uh. Okay. Uh. But yeah. So it anyway. it ended up being a great experience and also one that like the whole experience was like a learning curve for me, like learning a new medium, and learning how to work in it, and, and like figuring out what works for enough for me to focus and when I'm less focused that, you know, the whole thing has been like this experience of figuring it out. I feel like the challenge that you're just reminding me that like, look, 
it's everyone's first day on set at some point. Yeah. And also if people who are pros and like have been doing it a million times aren't kind about it and don't, then that's their problem. But like everyone has to start somewhere. Like nobody starts off. I have to remind myself of that. Like yeah. nobody starts out, out a Carrie Coons or a Kelly or anyone, you know, people yeah. you build, you build, you build, you build. liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!